so we're uh, still in John 6. Uh, this uh, passage is also found in Matthew 14, as well as in Mark 6, which uh, Mark read for us this morning. Um, each of these has some different details that kind of full, flesh out the whole picture, and I'll be referring to some of those details, although most of what I'm going to do, I think, is from John 6. Uh, let's pick up in verse 15 of this passage. Because I have that little bit of context there. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, not his disciples, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, even as we hear your word preached this morning. We ask that you would give us a greater love for your word, that you, by the power of the Spirit, would be writing it upon our hearts, that you would fill our mouths with it, help us to know it, and to speak of it to others, that they might know the great hope and power found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Perhaps some of you have heard the name recently, Dr. Brantley. Uh, Dr. Brantley was a medical missionary with Samaritan's Purse. Well, he still technically is. Uh, and he felt called by God. Yeah, i got to stay out of the... The wind, the, t- the wind tunnel there. Uh, <clears throat> he, he felt go- called by God specifically to go uh, to East Africa, the people of Liberia, to serve them as a medical missionary. And so last October, he and his family packed up everything, went over to Liberia to serve, and everything seemed to be going <clears throat> as could be expected for a medical missionary in Western Africa. <clears throat> that was until they heard the news about an outbreak of Ebola in Guinea. And they knew that it may come to Liberia. And in fact, in June, they started to hear of cases uh, of Ebola in their own country, and so they began to make preparations to serve those who might get this disease around them. And sure enough, it came closer, and the need became great, and he saw some wisdom in sending his wife and his family 
back to the States to safety. But he stayed to fulfill his call that he felt to the people of Liberia. It wasn't but three days before he was not able to get out of bed, just feeling sick and miserable. And lying in his bed, not knowing what was going on, not knowing that news of his illness had spread around the globe. Now, I don't think anyone here has ever had Ebola. <laughs> There's no cure for it, and it is a deadly disease. That doesn't mean everyone who has it is going to die. But as he lay upon his bed wondering what would happen to him, I'm sure he felt a fear that he would never see his family again until heaven. That life as he knew it had ended. That was a very real possibility. And I wonder what kind of went through his mind as he lay on that sickbed before he came to the States. Had he thought that Jesus had abandoned him? I don't know. He hasn't said. But when we are in those situations when it seems like life is falling apart, life as we knew it will never be the same, and in perhaps even the idea that life may end, do we ask that question? Where is God? Is he, is he with me in the midst of this mess, in the midst of this storm of life? Our big idea this morning is that we are preserved by Jesus' prayer and presence. But we have to start with the bad stuff, the hard stuff. Life's chaos fills us with fear and threatens our future. As I mentioned, uh, Luke does not include this particular miracle, and uh, this particular event, but Mark and Matthew do. And they include some information that John does not and one of the things is the idea that Jesus stayed behind specifically to address, or sorry, dismiss the crowd. You see that in Matthew and in Mark. And so what we see here when we bring all the three accounts into focus is that the disciples have been sent ahead to Capernaum without Jesus. They're going to be on the water, just like Dr. Brantley was in Liberia, because Jesus sent them there. It was not an accident. Okay, We have witnesses that we see at the end of this account in John, in, 20, in verses 22 and 24. They remember that the disciples got in the boat and left, and Jesus didn't. Okay, And so they're surprised when they find Jesus in Capernaum, and it's like, how did you get here? But we'll get to that a little bit later. The important thing is, he sent them away at this time. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide, 14 miles long, if I did my math correctly. And so they were probably going to have to row, because they're going, remember my invisible map, my pretend map? They're on, the, they're on the eastern coast somewhere here, and they're going to go to the northwest coast okay, of the Sea of Galilee. So, you know, it's probably six to eight miles, something along those lines. We're not sure exactly how far they were going to have to go. And it seemed rather simple. Some of them are fishermen. This shouldn't be very difficult, in a sense, for them to get in their boat and go that distance. But we see that John tells us, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. A wind stronger than my new air conditioning vent. Okay, 
<clears throat> now, that's part of the geography of that part of the world. You see, the Sea of Galilee is actually about 600 feet below sea level. And there's a wind tunnel effect that takes place. Because this wind comes off the Mediterranean Ocean, and it's funneled in by the different mountain ranges, and it ends up landing, so to speak, on the Sea of Galilee. And so it's very common for there to be these great winds that come in and stir up squalls on the Sea of Galilee. And these men usually, the ones who fished, like Matthew, that's sorry, not Matthew, uh, Peter, Andrew, John, James, those guys would know, okay, the wind's starting to get bad, we need to get out of here. Well, here they are, it's nighttime. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There's no place for them to go. They need to get to Capernaum. And the seas begin to rage. And the wind begins to howl. And most likely, there is rain in the midst of the darkness. In other words, folks, this isn't good. It's not where you want to be. I've been in boats fishing in Florida when bad things happened. I remember one time, I think, it, I think it was Christmas Eve, my friend and I had gone fishing in his boat, and uh, yeah, there was, was a little bit of drift, so we had put the anchor down, and then the wind got stronger. We reached the end of the anchor, and you know what happens then. The, bo the boat starts to go a bit like this, and the waves are starting to come, and we have to get out of there quickly, because if you know something else about Florida, it's not someplace you want to go swimming. Okay, <laughs> it may have been December, but I, you know the gators still might get hungry. Don't want to have to swim across the lake to get back. A little frightening. More frightening was the time in which we were on the far side of the lake, and uh, we could hear the thunder roar, and we could see the lightning flash, and we could see that it was coming our way. Not a, not a, normally a big deal. But it's sort of like these poor disciples. They're, they're struggling with the, with the oars. They're trying to get across. Well, the engine didn't want to cooperate that day. It was uh, not moving all that fast. And we're like begging it to move quicker as we see the storm clouds getting closer and closer. I mean, you don't want to be in a metal boat on a lake in a lightning storm. And that's where we were. And we barely made it in time. But it was a very, I was scared. I don't know about him, but I was scared. That's the disciples. Yeah, we need the, that thing. <laughs> I need to stick over here. <laughs> okay. They're fearing for their lives. Because not only are some of them experienced fishermen, they know the danger of the Sea of Galilee. That you don't mess with it. Now, for the Jews in general, if you look through Scripture, they see the sea as a picture, as a symbol of, of chaos. They see it as dangerous. It's not someplace you normally go. It is untamable. It is unpredictable. It's like life. We don't know what's happening tomorrow, next month, next year. There's an unpredictability to it, and sometimes that unpredictability, come, unpredictability results in bad things happening. Not just a broken collarbone, as some people have experienced here recently, but worse things. The storms of life are going to come to us. They are they're going to seemingly threaten our existence as we know it. 
And if they may even threaten all of God's work. Remember, who's in this boat? The twelve disciples. Who is Jesus going to task with going out into the world? Eleven of those twelve guys. The people he's been pouring himself into are in the boat. There is a sense in which everything hangs on this moment that we kind of don't often think about. Okay? The medical mission to Liberia, in a sense, hung in the balance as Dr. Brantley lay in the bed sick, wondering if he'd get better. We experience these things where Jesus does not promise us an easy ride. He does not promise that everything will go according to our plan, that there will not be bumps in the road and sometimes sinkholes. Okay? These will happen. We will experience these things. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Must be some of the dust. The storms of life are going to come. Okay? But let's notice something else. That idea of that all of them are in this. In a sense, the church, as it existed at that moment, was in the boat. And so it's not just the private storms of life that take place, but often it's the storms that threaten a church life that arise. Division, controversy. I, I know of a church that has struggled for years because their pastor had cancer. I mean, they're just like stuck in all of this. And so these things come and threaten their existence. We think of the Israelites at the Red Sea. That's why I, we had to read from Exodus uh, 14 this morning. And what's interesting is that if you compare those two texts, one of the things that's different is in Exodus 14, it's the wind that parted the waters so that the Israelites could go through. Of course, that same wind then changed direction and covered up the Egyptians. But for the Israelites, it was good. Here, the wind is bad. It's stirring up the waters that threaten the life instead of saving the lives of God's people in the boat. Right? Sometimes we have to recognize that it is Jesus himself who sends us into harm's way. He sent the disciples there. It's not because he's callous. It's not because he doesn't love them. There's something else that's greater that's going on. Sometimes Jesus sends the trouble our way. And in those moments, we feel like we perhaps have no future. We're confused. How has this happened to us? I can think of the people experiencing the earthquakes today. They're probably going, what just happened? How do I pick up and move on? And so just as Jesus was not with them, he seems very, often in those moments, he seems very far away from us. He seems very uninvolved in our circumstances. But is that the truth? When the storms of life hit, we are tempted to despair. How is it that we can survive? Well, first off, Jesus preserves us by praying on our behalf. See, while they're busy trying to get across the lake or the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was busy too because after he <clears throat> dismissed the people, in John's account, it, just, it simply mentions that he went into the mountain. He withdrew into the mountain. And yeah, I've overstepped my boundaries again. 
Why was he up in the mountain? Well, part of that is the context that was given, you know, at the beginning of this. They had wanted to make him king. And so once again, Jesus is faced with the temptation, just as he faced it in the wilderness with, the, with Satan. Bow down to me and I will give you all the, kings of the kingdoms of the earth. He's faced with that temptation. And has he rebuked it uh, when he faced it in the wilderness and now he withdraws from it? Sometimes we have to flee temptation. Okay, Jesus fled the temptation and Mark mentions that he went to pray. He went alone, to be alone in the mountain, on the mountainside, to pray. And so, most likely, he's praying for the temptation that he knows that, that he has with regard to being made king against his will. But he's also, I'm sure, praying for his ministry, for his disciples, and especially because right now he knows that they're going to be hitting a storm. He knows. He prays. It's very important for us to remember that he's praying for them, that he is preserving them in the midst of this storm as the waves crash over the bow of the boat and they're afraid for their lives. Jesus is praying for them. He knows their danger. And so his priestly ministry of prayer preserves them from death and destruction. It's not the only time. Luke 22, Jesus gives Peter sort of a, a, a hint of what happens behind the curtain. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter's not the only one, I think, that Satan asks to sift like wheat. But we have to know that Jesus prays for us, particularly that our faith may not fail. One of the great passages of Scripture, for me anyway, is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And here's what I love. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. The priestly ministry of Jesus Christ did not end with his death upon the cross, but it continues in his heavenly ministry for his people today as he lives forever to intercede or pray for them. It is very important that we understand this. I believe that we should memorize this passage because when the, the waves come across the bow of our boat, we are tempted to believe we have been forgotten and we need to remember that He intercedes for us. That whatever is going to happen is going to be okay. That we do indeed have comfort in life and in death because we know Jesus is ours and He prays for us. Because He lives forever. Think of the encouragement that we get from the prayers of others. When I was in seminary, I had made a trip home, I think it may have been for a wedding, and one of the senior saints, who I knew a little bit but didn't know incredibly well, she was one of the matriarchs of the congregation, she came up to me and said, Steve, I pray for you every day. And there were days I really needed her to pray for me as I experienced temptation, as I experienced affliction and various kinds. And it was Interesting in God's providence. The first Sunday morning, or first resurrection morning 
that I got to preach, I preached from this text, and I mentioned Mrs. Gay, how encouraging it was to me that Mrs. Gay was praying for me in seminary. A couple weeks later, I'm graduating from RTS. Who's there? Mrs. Gay. <laughs> Turns out she had started to winter in Florida, and one of the young men in that congregation was graduating that day, and she was there. So it was a nice, quick little, I mentioned you in my sermon the other day. Sometimes the, the, the knowledge that one person is praying for us can sustain us. The other side of that is Dr. Brantley. Thousands, perhaps millions of people had heard about his affliction and had begun to pray for him. In his press conference upon his release from uh, the hospital, he mentions that, ah, can't remember. I want to get it right. Don't have it right. I serve a faithful God who answers prayers. He saw his restoration to health as a direct consequence of the prayers of God's people for his well-being. That God answered those prayers. But what I want you to know even more than that, okay, is that no matter how few or how many people might be praying for you in the midst of your affliction, it is Jesus who leads the prayer meeting. He is the one who knows the depths of your heart, that no, the ways that no one else knows, the particular fears in, in, that you experience, the experience the way the trial is, is just destroying you. He knows and He prays. And he works by the sending of the Spirit to stir up other people to pray. Sometimes someone comes to your mind and you're not sure why and you pray for them. The Spirit is at work. Doesn't matter if you know what's wrong, but you pray for that person that God would preserve them and keep them whatever the circumstances might be. And so Jesus works not just by his own prayers, but also through the prayers of his people to preserve us. Know indeed, as Dr. Brantley has confessed, that you serve a faithful God who answers prayer. So Jesus, the Jesus who had fed them miraculously, he has all power. He also prays to preserve us out of his love for us. Lastly, Jesus preserves us with his presence as creator and redeemer. They weren't expecting this. They thought they were alone on the lake. And that is when they see the shadowy figure walking on the water. In the midst of the wind, the waves, the darkness and rain, they see someone, something out there. R.C. Sproul mentions they now saw Jesus approaching them without the benefit of a boat. He was walking in the darkness over the chaotic, frothing sea. And we have to keep that in mind, that idea of this almost sensory overload for these guys. It's crazy out there, and they see somebody. And it says that they're afraid. And in Matthew and Mark, it tells us why they're afraid. They think it's a ghost. Okay, in other words, they probably think that it's all over. <laughs> they're, down, they're, they're goners. Okay, in the middle of this lake, very bad things are going to happen here. 
Why is it that they doubted so much? It's really not till the end of Mark's account of this that we see. For in verse uh, 52 we read, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So they had just witnessed Jesus feed 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children with the five tiny loaves and the two tiny fish. They didn't get it. Their hearts are hardened. And hardened hearts begin to doubt the goodness and the greatness of our God. And so in a sense, they're just like the Israelites that were crying out to Moses. We didn't have that part of Exodus 14 in there. But it was one of the many times they cried out, Where there are not enough graves in Egypt for you to bring us out here? In other words, we're going to die out here. Hadn't they been witnessing the ten plagues? Didn't they know the power of their God and the way He discriminated for them and protected them and preserved them and they think that now He's going to let them die at the edge of the Red Sea? Which can also be translated the Sea of Overcoming. And God did overcome the Egyptians. We're going to die. Because their hearts were hardened. They lost sight of the goodness and greatness of God. Some people, because of their hard hearts, reject the clear testimony of this passage. Because it says Jesus walked on the water. It didn't say Jesus. it looked like Jesus walked on the water or any other variety of things that people might come up with. And so we don't believe that Jesus was, as some think, walking on the shoreline. That they had somehow gotten close to shore and there's Jesus walking. But do you realize how far he would have had to walk? I mean, they had a big head start, you know? Is Jesus like the flash? <laughs> Suddenly he's there. Some people think he's walking on a sandbar. Oh, yeah, it's not really water. He's just walking on a sandbar. I've been on sandbars in uh, Tampa Bay. And the only way I got to the sandbar was a boat. Okay, if there's a sandbar in the middle of a body of water, not like one right near the shore, you know, but if there's one out in the middle of a body of water, you got to get there by a boat. You don't just stroll way out there and, you know, Jesus walked on the water. The creator of the universe was able to suspend the laws of nature, sorry, I keep forgetting, and walk along the water, upon the water. They're fearful. They're crying out. And he says, it is I. Or, in the Greek, you see the construction, ego, me, I am. All of those I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John, this is another one. He's invoking the divine name, Yahweh, the Lord. As the Creator who is veiled in flesh, Jesus was present with His disciples. He's not out for a random stroll. It's not, he's not like me. He doesn't have a Fitbit that tells, me, that tells him, you still have more steps to go to get to your 10,000 today, Steve. Why don't you walk on the Sea of Galilee? Okay? He doesn't have that. He's there for them. He comes for His people. For His beloved disciples. He walks through the midst of the storm. 
He didn't calm it yet. When he gets into the boat, we see that in uh, Mark's account, the storm ceases. All is well. But when they first see him, it's still raging. And he says, it's me. Do not be afraid. The very thing that they were was afraid. This is one of the most common commands because often we are afraid. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What was Abram afraid of? His wife was barren, and he was in a foreign land with people who didn't like him very much. God was going to be with him. Exodus 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. What were they afraid of? The Egyptian army with all of its chariots bearing down on them. Exodus 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What were they afraid of? We've talked about this the last couple weeks. The voice of God. You talk to us, Moses. Don't let him talk to us anymore. That's the same passage. Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. What were they afraid of? Taking on all of the nations within the promised land. Far more numerous than them. And they were afraid. And God says, don't worry about it. I will take care of it. Last one I'm going to read. Wish we had planned this song for today. Isaiah 41. Even the best music planners don't have enough time to put all the great songs in. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so this command, this theme goes throughout the scriptures from beginning to end. We see it in Hebrews. We see it in Revelation. From Genesis to Revelation is this idea of fear not, for I am with you. Now, we're not going to talk much about this, but in Matthew's account, there's one, one thing that's not in the other two accounts, and that's Peter going out and walking on the water too. Until Peter saw the wind. Now, that seems strange to us. He sees the wind. He sees all the rain and everything else. He took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. And so when we're in the midst of a storm, no matter what kind it is, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 12. We need to fix our eyes on him. He's the only one who sees us through, and he's the one who is present with us in the midst of that storm. When Jesus joins them in the boat, the winds cease. He has control, he has authority over the winds as well as the waves. And I, and I love how you can put this. 
In John, it says they immediately got to shore, but one of the ways you can translate that is they made it to shore forthwith. I watch all of these cop shows, and they like to use the word forthwith, <laughs> meaning like right away. And so part of what happens here, because the storm ceases, they're able to make quick headway at the end. It's not like, well, I don't think it's like John Chrysostom thinks, where there was a second miracle where they were basically moved from the middle of the lake to the shoreline instantaneously. I think it just, just the idea is just, in this case, they went very quickly. But I could be wrong. Okay? But they move to and arrive safely at their intended destination. Okay? There's a fulfillment something of something here. Psalm 65, verse 6. And this is the middle of a sentence, so hang with it. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. And so we see God as creator having the power and the desire at times to still the seas. And Jesus stilling the sea because he is our creator. Psalm 107, verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And I'm sure the disciples were doing that. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Jesus, not just as creator, but also as redeemer, hushing the tumult of the waves and the wind to protect his people. does it. But it's not just pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. There's also something else going on here that's even far greater. It's pointing to the reality of a renewed creation. A new heavens. A new earth. Remember what, what happened when with Jesus had his resurrected body? He walked through walls. He was able to do things that ordinary flesh and blood don't do. Okay? When we get to Revelation 21, he wanted to go over there. What we find is that there's no more sea. And remember that picture of what the sea represents chaos, destruction. In the renewed heavens and in the renewed earth, there's no more. Chaos. There's no more destruction. There's no more sin. Jesus has calmed the storm that Adam started and brought shalom back to all of creation. And so Jesus is doing, I mean, he's preserving his people, but he's also pointing us to a picture of something incredible to stir up in us a holy longing and desire for that day when we will no longer be tormented, no longer be afflicted, no longer be afraid. There will be no more earthquakes, Ebola, cancer, whatever. Gone. Because of Jesus. 
So our faithful creator and redeemer did not keep the disciples from the storm. He, in fact, used the storm to reveal more of who he was as well as who they were. Jesus still uses storms in our lives for that dual purpose, to show us who he is and to show us who we are. In the midst of the storm, Jesus was praying. In the midst of the storm, Jesus is present. And so, brothers and sisters, whether you live or die in that storm, he faithfully preserves you for your salvation and eternal life. He's trustworthy. So let us trust him, regardless of what may come. Let's pray. Father, I ask indeed that there are those who are suffering right now in our midst. Whether it's a physical ailment or an emotional sort of ailment, relational difficulties, we struggle. And these people need to know that you are with them. They need to know that Jesus prays for them. And so work by the power of your Spirit to convince them, to assure them of the the certainty of this reality, that their hearts may not be filled with fear, but even in the midst of their sadness, with faith, with trust, with longing. And Father, for those whose storms have not yet arrived, I ask that you would prepare them for the storm, even now. So that when it hits, they're able to remember, Jesus prays. Jesus is present. He will preserve. And so keep us, Father, not just as individuals, but also as families, and also as a family, a congregation, an assembly. See us through the storms that this congregation will experience by helping us to always remember He prays, He's present, He preserves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.